pull over and say, you know, they won't miss me today. Cold out there, warm in here, really nice. Guys, take your Bibles and turn to John, uh, Mark uh, chapter 9. That would help if I remember which gospel we're in. It's Mark. And uh, remember the context. They were reach, we reached the, the climax of the first half of Mark when Peter said, You are the Christ. From there, uh, Jesus takes them up on a mount of, so that he is transfigured before them. They come back down the valley and they face the difficulties of life just like we have to do after being on the mountaintop. And by speaking of mountaintops, uh, don't forget retreat. And I really encourage you to come. You need to set aside blocks of time. Block of time every week, block of time every day, block of time once a year. And this is one of those blocks, uh, the men's retreat. So we really encourage you to come. But uh, these guys had the same thing. They had their retreat on the mountain. And then he took them off the mountain right into the valley to see the problems that were all around them, including this epileptic boy with an evil spirit. They couldn't cast him out. And they learned that the only way that this one comes out is through prayer. Jesus had told them, remember, right after Peter confessed who he was, he said, I'm going to be uh, crucified. I'm going to be uh, oppressed. I'm going to be beaten by the authorities, but I will rise in three days. So he told them about the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we see that they, they still didn't get it. And today we see in a really big way that they don't get it because we're going to see them in some arguments and disagreements which reflect in their own hearts the exact opposite of getting the cross and getting the Lordship of Christ. It's the same way with us. And it's often revealed in relationships that we don't really get it. Sometimes uh, it's revealed on February the 14th, Valentine's Day. We don't really get it. Uh, it's re- revealed in our relationships with our spouses and with our best friends. And here is the case as well. We're going to see how important human relationships are in the kingdom of God and in each one of our lives. So let's, let's look at uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 33, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. But whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Amen. Well, it's an amazing thing that uh, a man can take a team that's struggling a little bit, maybe struggling a lot, take them to the very heights of performance in the NFL so they win more regular season games than anybody else in the NFL, and then at the end of the season, he just can't. <laughs> How does such a thing happen? Well, did Marty Schottenheimer get canned because he couldn't win the big playoff games? Well, maybe. But that's not what the press is saying, and that's not what, not what Marty Schottenheimer is saying. Marty Schottenheimer is saying, yeah, I can because he couldn't get along with the general manager. 14-2 and two in the regular season, canned because he couldn't get along with people. He also happened to have lost two coaches and two coordinators. Can't get along with people. Roger Ailes, who was a major uh, PR guy for Ronald Reagan, went into business after that on his own in a human relations uh, way. And uh, he said, shortly after Reagan was president, he said, you know, we've studied people who have gotten fired, and that would include some of us in the room. And he said in 75% of the cases, it did not have to do with their ability to perform a task. It had to do with relationships. 75% of the time. I, I would guess it's, it's more than that. Do you believe it? That... Your effectiveness is largely based on how you get along with people. And I want to suggest to you that, that Christ has a lot to do with this. Uh, in fact, he'll, he'll have everything to do with it if you let him take over. And he can, through enabling you to deal with people successfully, help you overcome major deficiencies in other parts of your skill set. Uh, David Gergen wrote the book Eyewitness to Power. And uh, he basically it means he was the eyewitness to power. And the reason is he was a, an assistant for Nixon, for uh, Ford, uh, for Reagan, and for Clinton. And he studied all the presidents in his own lifetime. And he said, people will ask me all the time, how is it that Reagan was so successful? The guy wasn't smart. And Gergen says, well, you can say he's not smart until you read the book about e-intelligence. And he said, if you'll just read the book on e-intelligence, he said, you'll understand Mr. Reagan. He was a genius when it came to e-intelligence, emotional intelligence. He said he could just sense what people were longing for. He could sense what their needs were. He was able to treat them with respect. He genuinely liked people. He said, you get in a room with Reagan and the deal is done. He has such massive e-intelligence. Well, he's an unusual case of it. But I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus is teaching e-intelligence to his disciples and to us. And he would take us up to the next level. And he would make us very effective in our marriages and in our workplace, in our churches, in the community, through relationships. And we're going to see how vital they are. It's interesting that you find in Mark, in chapter 8, 9, and 10, 
Jesus is predicting his crucifixion and his resurrection. It keeps coming up. It's a refrain. If this were a hymn, this would be the, this would be the, the refrain. That I'm, you know, I'm going to suffer and three days rise again. He says it over and over again. He just said it right before this text in verses 30 through 32. He was teaching his disciples and he said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days he will rise. So he's talking about the cross over and over again. And remember, after the high confession of Peter in chapter 8, now we're moving toward the cross in Jerusalem and Jesus is teaching them the cross and showing them the way of the cross. And one of the immediate implications of putting your faith in Jesus Christ and his cross work is relationships. And here we see it largely by negative example, but positive teaching by the, by the Lord as he intervenes on the negative behavior of his disciples to teach them about the meaning of cross-centered relationships. If we've taken up our cross, it means something distinctive about relationships. Well, let's take a look at it. In verses 33 through 37, we're going to see, first of all, that if we take up the cross, we must esteem others more highly than ourselves. The cross enables us to do this. In the first verses, you kind of see what the disciples are up to. And we learn that below the surface, we normally have a hidden agenda. Below the surface, we normally have a hidden agenda. And what is the hidden agenda? A desire for greatness. Now, you're going to see it again in chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. It comes up again where James and John argue about whether they can be on the right hand. In other versions, is James and John's mother who's arguing with Jesus about letting them be on the right and left hand. Now, what we have to understand about first century relationships is that they were very hierarchical, very hierarchical. First of all, in the synagogue, if you were to go to synagogue, you would have your pew. Now, some of you in the Episcopal Church still may have your pews. You know, in the early church in America, uh, Church of England, uh, you would buy your pew and your pew was based upon your position in society, largely. And if you had a high position, you were expected to pay more for your family pew. And you had the same pew, you paid for it. And in fact, it would be locked uh, until you got there and the steward would take you to your pew. Uh, and that was exactly the way it was in the first century. Everybody had their seat. And when you go to synagogue, which was the main community assembly of the week, uh, you go and you sit according to your stat status in the community. And that sounds kind of ugly to us. We're a kind of anti-authoritarian, democratic-minded person because we were revolting from a hierarchical government, so we kind of have it in our DNA, and it just sounds absolutely outrageous to us. But, you know, most, most societies are this way. They're very hierarchical. Uh, in the Jewish home, uh, if you served a meal... This reason Jesus talks about the high place and the low place. The reason was you would have had a place assigned to you if you went to eat at a festival meal in someone's house. They would have you sit in the place according to the way in which you were perceived by your status in the community. And if you were the least uh, uh, on the hierarchical scale, you would sit at the low seat at the feast. And that's the reason Jesus said, why don't you just go ahead and take the low seat and then people will move you up and say, no, 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 Mr. Wilson, no, sir, you, you belong up here. They take you halfway up, maybe. Uh, whereas if you start higher than half, they say, no, Mr. Wilson, I think you better, you better sit here. Let's make room for Mr. Johnson. So he says, 
Jesus said, why don't you start in the low end and then everything's up from there. <laughs> and uh, but it was very hierarchical in the synagogue, in the home, in the court. If there was a court case in the community, same thing. You gather the elders for the judgment. The elders all sit in their right place and everybody has a hierarchical place. So what Jesus is saying is that we all desire the higher seat. We all desire the honor of the community. We, we all want to be lifted up in our minds. And you see it so clearly here with the disciples. Uh, here Jesus had just talked about his own violent death. The big burden that he was carrying on his shoulders as they moved to Jerusalem. And what are the disciples talking about? Uh, they don't even want to admit it. But they were talking about who was the greatest. Is that not ridiculous? They're facing this major crisis and they're arguing. And Jesus, of course, knew what they were arguing. He said, what are you all arguing about? And they said, oh, 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 oh. Uh, they didn't want to admit it. And it's the same way with you and me in church. We have this huge drama in front of us, the drama of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the great commission to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ and proclaim and advance the gospel around the world at, at the risk of our own lives and all we can talk about is what color the paint is or who's the greatest or who gets the most honor in the church and who gets elected to be a deacon or an elder or whatever. That's all we can argue about. And the disciples here were doing the same thing. So if that's happened to you, you're in good company. You're right there with the apostles. We have these hidden agendas and they break out. And whether they break out before other men or not, believe me, Jesus knows what's on our heart. He knows the hidden agenda. And the great tragedy in the church today is that most guys... Like ourselves, we profess certain things. We do go in and get involved in certain behaviors, but down underneath there's another agenda that's actually driving our lives. And we're really living in two worlds, the world of what we profess publicly and then the world of what, what our real values are that are making the difference in the decisions that we're making. And Jesus is going to confront them on it. And he confronts them this way. In verse 35, he tells them that true greatness is found in lowliness. True greatness is found in lowliness. That is, the way up is the way down. If you want to be first, then you must be last. If you want to be the true master of the universe, you must be the servant of all. You must be a slave and a servant in order to be great. This is completely nonsense. This makes no sense to a first century Jewish man. The way to be first is to be first in the eyes of everybody else. The way to be the greatest is to have the most number of servants, the most number of people working for you. And Jesus said, no, it's just the other way around. Instead of being at the top of the pyramid, you want to be down at the bottom. That's where the great seat is. It's wild. But you can see it working out after Pentecost comes and the disciples now are going out into the world when they really get the kingdom on their minds, when they really know what it's all about, then you can see this reversal taking place. One of the greatest examples is one of my favorite figures in the book of Acts, who's Barnabas. Of course, Paul is, the, I guess, the great champion, of, uh, humanly, of the book of Acts. But Barnabas is this wonderful figure uh, who is a very respectable man. You may remember in Acts chapter 11, that a strange thing is starting to happen, that Christians, uh, men are beginning to become Christians who do not have a Jewish background. 
And this is really scary to the Christians in Jerusalem because they had assumed that what the Messiah was all about was to gather all the Jewish people, a Jewish Messiah for Jewish people to restore the Jewish nation, restore the greatness of the kingdom, even beyond Solomon's days. They would assume that's what the Messiah would be all about. And they were learning Messiah was about the entire world and giving everyone equal status when they came into the kingdom, whether they were Jew or Gentile. That still hadn't sunk down into the new Christians' minds because they all had one ethnic identity. They were Jewish, and they assumed the whole church would be Jewish. So they should go around all of the Roman Empire to all the synagogues and collect all the Jews, which was, of course, what Paul did first. He went to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. But in Antioch, in Syria, just north of Israel, some people were starting to become Christians who did not have a Jewish background. They were these wild uh, Gentiles, crazy people. They didn't have any Jewish manners. They didn't know liturgy. They didn't know sexual ethics. These were crazy people. And, you know, the Jewish Christians were wondering if these people could ever really become Christians. So they sent a man up there named Barnabas. Why? Because the Antiochian Gentiles had become Christians through evangelists from Cyprus, and Barnabas was from Cyprus. But there's another reason they sent Barnabas. Because he was a man of encouragement. His very name, Barnabas, means son of encouragement. And they knew that he was the kind of person who would be able to evaluate the work of the Spirit in a Gentile soul because he was a very loving and gracious man. Well, Barnabas goes up there, and sure enough, he recognizes and takes delight in God's work in other ethnic groups. He is full of joy over it. He doesn't feel defensive. He's not guarding the boundaries of the church ethnically. He's a multiculturalist. He goes up there and takes great delight that the Persians are coming to Christ and the Romans are coming to Christ and the Athenians are coming to Christ. And Antioch was a multicultural city, a cosmopolitan city, the most cosmopolitan in that whole area of the Middle East. And they were there and they were building a multicultural church. Barnabas was delighted in it. Furthermore, Barnabas, uh, one of the only two men in the New Testament called a good man, Joseph of Arimathea was the other one. He's a good man, full of the spirit, full of faith. And many people came to Christ through Barnabas's ministry. So here Barnabas is Mr. Church Planter. I mean, this guy has evangelized pagans. He has built a multicultural church, first one in the world. I mean, this guy's a rock star. And it would have been very easy for him to say, now, uh, let's think about the name of this church. How about uh, St. Barnabas? <laughs> I mean, yeah, he was a senior minister, church planter, founder. This guy was a hero. But what did he do after he had, he had a first harvest of conversions? Well, in Acts 11, you find out he went up to Tarsus to go get Paul. Now, remember, Paul had kind of flamed out. It looked like he had great promise on the road to Damascus. He was converted, went out into Arabia to study went back to Jerusalem, and his preaching caused all kinds of conflict. Because here you had Jewish Christians. Paul was already convinced that he was supposed to go to the Gentiles. He was enraging everybody, and we're told that finally, when they got him out of Jerusalem, Jerusalem had peace. <laughs> some, some of that can be said of some of us around here. Get rid of us, and you got peace. So Paul goes on to Tarsus, and largely it seems forgotten and marginalized. What does Barnabas do? He realizes these people need to be taught by a man like Paul. He walks a hundred miles, walks a hundred miles to go to Tarsus, pleads with Paul. I'd love to be a fly on the wall and hear that conversation. 
No, Barnabas, look, you led those people to Christ. You're a wonderful man. You're a very wise man. You can, you can handle that. You're fine. Every time I've tried it, I've just caused an explosion. No, Paul. Nobody knows the gospel like you do. And nobody knows Gentiles like you do, Paul. I need you, Paul. Come with me. Paul came with him, walked back a hundred miles, began to minister there. Can you imagine? You're in the church in Antioch. Your Sunday school teacher is Barnabas. And the preacher on Sunday morning every week is the Apostle Paul. Man, what a team. And they built there a church that was the staging ground for the world mission of the church. From Antioch, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned to go out. They took their first missionary journey. So on Paul and Silas, then the second missionary journey, the third missionary journey, they reached the entire world from that church in Antioch. Barnabas. The reason Barnabas was so successful was that Barnabas knew how to submit himself and to use the gifts of the Apostle Paul. And you see it here that he found it in lowliness. He was able to make himself a servant. He was just the Cupid who brought brought Paul and the church in Antioch together. He knew his place. If you can go down, you can find your place. If you always have to be at the top, you can't find your place because you always have to be at the top. So you can't really use the gifts of the people around you because the one thing that's, that's determined and settled in your mind is that you have to be at the top. So the guy who ought to be at the top can't get to the top because you have to be at the top. So the only way you can figure out how any organization is going to run is if you're at the bottom. And then you can see up and see everybody in your organization and see what's good for them. It's the same way in the church. If you have to be at the top. Anybody here who's a senior minister, please listen to me. If you have to be at the top, then you can't bless your church because you don't know where everybody else needs to be. Barnabas was this kind of person. So what happens? We have the launching of the Pauline ministry that absolutely changed the world. Now, notice something very interesting about Barnabas. Remember I said he goes with Paul on their first missionary journey, and their first journey is across the Mediterranean to Cyprus, which is Barnabas' home territory. So they go to his home state first. And they evangelize with great success there. And then they cross the Mediterranean going north and go into Asia. They have their first missionary journey. Then you remember what happens in the second missionary journey. Uh, Barnabas invited John Mark to come along because John Mark was an extended relative. Mark, John Mark and Paul have a disagreement. Paul doesn't trust Mark. I suspect that Mark basically abandoned Paul even theologically, and went back to Jerusalem and told on him. That's what I suspect. And Paul would have none of it. Because when you're being stoned and left for dead, you've got to have your back covered. And you can't have a guy in ministry with you that you don't really trust. And Paul didn't trust Mark. And Barnabas is the encourager. I'm sure you're saying, now, Paul, he's young. He's going to grow. He's going to develop. He's got tremendous skills. And, of course, he did, didn't he? He wrote, wrote this gospel. And he was the... Patron saint of Egypt. But in those days, Paul and Mark had this split, so Barnabas ends up going off with John Mark. In fact, here's what happens. Barnabas elevates Paul and then gets fired. Gets Paul in the corner office, and because Paul's in the corner office, he's now out. But he blessed the church. And it didn't matter. And of course, you can read in Second Timothy, Paul's last letter, that he yearns for John Mark because he's such a comfort to him. So don't discount any relationship, no matter how broken it may be right now, because in the kingdom they all come back around. But in the moment, it looked like Barnabas had just stabbed himself. 
But that's what it means to be a servant. You put yourself at the service of Christ, at the service of the church, at the service of those who have gifts that need to be used. Now, Barnabas is a wonderful example of finding true greatness through lowliness. And that's exactly what Jesus had taught the disciples. Now, look in verses 36 and 37, and you'll see that our greatness is evidenced by our company. Well, we all know this. If you want to be known as a prestigious person, then you need to have your picture in the paper with prestigious people. That's the way it works. Some of you have those, pre- those pictures of yourself and the president on the wall, don't you? Yes, if you want to be known as a person of influence and power, you better, you better be seen with people of power. Anybody who knows how to handle power knows that's true. Why is it that everybody in the White House, once their, their office is measured, their significance is measured by the proximity of their office to the Oval Office? It doesn't matter how small your office is. Now, if you come to Memphis, it's the size of your office. But if you're in the White House, it's the proximity to the Oval Office. If you're on the same hall, you're very important. If you're right next to the president, you may as well be the president. You have extraordinary power. And that's the way human power works, the same way in your business. If you muck it up with the chairman of the board or the CEO, you have power. And everybody is aware of it. And sometimes you don't want it trying to get away from it but you're very aware of it now look what jesus said you want power in the kingdom play with the kids and in jewish society kids were basically considered insignificant that's the reason that jesus love for children is so outrageous in the new testament he was taking those that really just didn't matter and he was saying these are my friends along with prostitutes and tax collectors and other kind of non-powerful people he was known by his company That's the reason that the religious leaders were so angry with him. This guy hangs out with the wrong people. Let me tell you something about followers of Christ. They're always hanging out with the wrong people. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you you really want to be great, if you want to be known as the one who hangs out with the right people, then welcome this child. Why? He explains it. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name, he says, welcomes me. Now, look how it works. If you welcome the little child, you welcome Jesus. Then he goes on to say, if you welcome Jesus, you welcome the Father. Now, what's the significance of this word, in my name, or this phrase, in my name? He's basically saying that little children have my name on them. That is to say this, little children are my emissaries. In the first century... If you're sent as a diplomat or an emissary with the name of Caesar, you are to be treated like Caesar would be treated. It was a huge honor for Caesar to give you his name, to go into a foreign country, to go into part of the kingdom or the Roman Empire. Because when you go as his legate, his emissary, you're treated as Caesar. Because you've got his name on you. Jesus is saying, the kids have my name on them. Treat them as you would treat me. Wow. Now, you see the same thing with the poor, don't you? Matthew 25. The sheep and the goats. Who are the sheep? They're the ones who realize the prisoners had his name on them. The poor had his name on them. The homeless had his name on them. 
They're his agents and his representatives. And they are to be treated like he would be treated. Wow. So he's saying that about little children. Then what does he say about himself? He says, I've got the father's name on me. So if you want to honor the father, if you really believe in God. Then you will treat me as God. Because I have his name on me. So you see how it works and it's passed down to the little children. So what you do as a Christian man, when you're looking for greatness, I'm dead serious. The disciples didn't get it, but Jesus was dead serious. If you really want human greatness, look for where the name of God is. The name of Christ. And it's with the little kids. That's the reason, gentlemen, when you go to church this Sunday, don't just breeze by the kids. Don't think that their names are not important. When you're trying to acquire the names of the people in your church, don't think that the kids are important. They're hard because they keep changing on you, and you know them at five, and they're totally different at ten. You have to keep relearning the name and the face because they change. They're very important people. The nursery is extraordinarily important, and men tend to pass it off just like James and John would have quickly passed that one off. They forbid the children from taking Jesus' time. Do you remember that? And he said, forbid not the children to come to me. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. When you see the little kid coming by, looking up at you, don't dismiss them and pass them off. Look right back and speak to them and honor them. Honor the children. When you go home tonight and you have children at your feet, they are not a nuisance They're not someone to make your life happy. They have the name of Jesus on them. They're his emissaries in your home. And the least in your home is to be treated as though you were the least. You become their servants. I'm convinced no man really understands fatherhood until he understands it really is about being a servant and taking the lowest seat in the house. So that's what Jesus is teaching us in this text. Our greatness is evidenced by our company. The ones that we honor reflect what we believe about greatness. And when we give the highest seat to the one who happens to be the greatest in the eyes of this world, we've just revealed we don't know anything about the cross. We don't know anything about Jesus Christ. We don't know anything about true greatness. I'm not saying that we don't make friends among this world's powerful. I'm not saying that we don't try to influence things in the highest place. I'm not saying that when you're given an opportunity to govern or to rule or to influence that you don't use it. I'm just simply saying use it with this mentality and you'll see that it changes every way in which you lead in your business and work and at home. Now, secondly, we get this interesting thing with John, uh, the apostle, in verse 38, where we are going to learn from Jesus that we must include others in the work of the kingdom. And here we get a little bit of turf guarding, another another male trait to guard the turf. It's kind of like, you know, the male dogs go on and they lift a leg and pee on the fire hydrant. And what are they doing? They're laying claim to their turf. They pee on everything. Uh, gentlemen, don't do this on your home boundaries. You know, don't this, you don't have to do this. I'm just using it as an analogy. But the dog will pee on everything around the corner of his property so that every other dog knows by they can scent, they can smell it. This belongs to Taylor. <laughs> yeah. So stay off my turf. 
And men are just like that. They just pee on things all around, and they lay claim to their turf. And don't trespass, don't tread on me, etc., etc. This is a male trait. And John's got it in spades. Look what he says. Teacher, I know you'd be really proud of me. <clears throat> he says, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. You see the use of in your name here. We saw him driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. What would you think about that, Jesus? I'm standing up for you. And Jesus has a few things to say about territory. He shows in verse 38, or John shows us, that we tend to exclude the unauthorized servants. He just says he was not one of us. And notice that this is even the most loving of us. John, the apostle of love. The one who wrote John's gospel and the epistle of love, 1 John. That, you know, if we say we love God and don't love our brothers, we're liars. And he just pleads with us. Little children, he says to the congregation, little children, love one another. As God has loved you, as Jesus Christ has loved you, love one another. This is John who's saying this. And you can see that John was not by nature a loving person. John was not by nature a sharing person. Jesus called him Boanerges, which means son of thunder. <laughs> That's John by nature. So some of you may be a son of thunder. And look, you can become a gentle, loving man without getting rid of all your testosterone. You can still be a gentle, loving man. It happened to John. But notice even the most loving of us can be turf guarders. And even when others do things we can't do. Notice the real irony here if you compare it to chapter 9, verse 14. Here, these people were casting out demons. And just a few minutes ago, the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. No wonder they were jealous. These guys over here who weren't in the church and weren't Presbyterian, they were doing something Presbyterians can't do. So it must be bad theology. If these people are casting out demons, it must be bad theology. They must not be really committed. Jesus, I just told them to stop. And Jesus had a word with them. Verses 39 to 41, Jesus teaches us to include others because. And he gives back four good reasons. First of all, they're doing others a lot of good. Why do you want to stop somebody from casting demons out? Why do you want to stop somebody from feeding the poor? Why do you want to stop somebody from giving someone a house? Why do you want to stop somebody from helping our society? For heaven's sake, stop stopping them. Secondly, they're speaking well of Jesus. They're not one of us. They may not belong to our group. But they're speaking well. And Jesus says, if they're casting out a demon by my name, they're not going to be able to speak poorly of me very lightly. He kind of uses a little funny pun there. And he says, they won't be able to do, speak of me badly in a light manner anyway. <laughs> so, thirdly, they're not opposing us. You know, if you're going to go stop somebody, why don't you stop somebody who's trying to stop you? These people are not trying to stop you. They're not against us. In that sense, they're for us. Now, you know there's another text in which Jesus says, if you're not with us, you're against us. It's a different meaning behind the saying. And it is true. If you're not going with Jesus, you are ultimately against him. But Jesus is saying, no, in your ministry, you don't have to measure whether someone's actually converted or not. If their work is not opposing you, then don't oppose them. Don't pick a fight. You don't have to fight. And fourthly, they're going to be rewarded in verse 41. They will be rewarded by God. So what are you, why are you trying to 
demean them. Now, let's look at these charts I've drawn out for you. And let's look at what this may mean in the way that you do your work in ministry. You'll notice that if you take the extreme categories here of a Christian and a non-Christian, a person who believes and a person who doesn't believe, we have all kinds of different interests. The unbeliever basically just wants to be freedom, free from moral coercion. He wants a pluralistic environment where he doesn't feel judged, where the Christians aren't able to set the agenda and all that. We know that's what they want in culture. What do we want? Well, we want to evangelize our friends. We want to be involved in personal discipleship. We want a vital church. We want biblical public morality. But you know what? Even between the two of us, we've got a lot of common ground. We all want good schools. We want safety and security. We want good medical care. We want civil rights and relationships. We want to eradicate poverty. We have a lot in common. And Jesus is saying, look for the common ground and work together. And, you know, you can work together as an individual. Some of you serve in certain civic functions. Some of you serve in government. Some of you serve in the schools. And Jesus is saying, go for it. You have a tremendous opportunity to do good. Let's partner with people who want to do good, who are not opposing us, who want to advance the welfare of society. And so many Christians want to separate themselves and they want to have a separate kingdom where they're doing their own safety and security. They want all their policemen to be Christians. They want all their doctors to be Christians. They only work civil rights through the church and they only want to eradicate poverty through the church. I think you're missing a huge opportunity to find common ground with people of a variety of interests. Now, does that mean that if you work uh, in an organization with non-Christians that you cease to be interested in evangelism? Absolutely not. One, one of the best examples might be uh, folks here who are working at Berkeley School. And we just get a prayer list. We haven't evangelized the teachers. We just ask them for a prayer list. You know what? They're giving us all kinds of prayers. And we just tell them we're just praying for them. When we're on their turf, we play by their rules. And we don't evangelize because the government's told us not to. But when they come on our turf, guess whose rules we play by? So if we invite them to church and they come, then we speak of the gospel and we evangelize. Their kids come to our vacation Bible school and to our recreational programs, the ones who want to. And we're able to give invitations over there. Why? Because we're serving them, because we care about the evangelism or we care about the education of Hispanic, African-American, and Anglo kids that are all up in the Berkeley community. So you don't have to surrender who you are in order to find common ground and promote the public welfare. Look at the same way about the concerns of the kingdom and the concerns of the state. And you see the, the various concerns there. But look where we have common ground. Educating, helping the poor, building solid families. Let's look for ways to work with NGOs, government, without losing our own identity. And you can do that. Now, if you lose your own identity, you've been assimilated into the world's agenda. But if you keep your identity and strictly find the common ground in a program where both parties can maintain their identity, then you can partner. Look at the bottom one. This one's easier. Here we're talking about Christians. But you know what? Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians. I just picked three of them here. We tend to get off in our own little side roads and certainly, if we're going to plant a church, it's easier for Presbyterians to go ahead and plant your church. Baptists, go ahead and plant yours. Episcopalians, go ahead and plant your Otherwise, we'll spend all of our time arguing about who has the steering wheel and what kind of church it's going to be. So go ahead. Do that on your own. But there are many things we can do together. And you can find where the Baptists and Presbyterians can work together. The Baptists and the Methodists can work together. The, the Methodists and the Presbyterians can work. And then they can all work together in certain places. We need to think about where these parts, 
where these places are, what these ministries are. This is the kind of uh, conclusion I would say we would come to if we take Jesus' teaching seriously. Don't turf guard. Don't tell people to stop. Don't look down your nose at them. Remember, God's going to reward them. Now, let's look at verses 42 through 50 uh, as we come toward a close here. This is very important. We must lead others in the way of Christ. So if we're paying attention to relationships, if we really let the cross influence how we're relating to other people, we're going to esteem them more highly than ourselves. We're going to include others best that we're able in our own work and ministry and desire to advance the welfare of this city. We're going to include as many as we can without sacrificing our own identity and our own ultimate agendas. But we're also going to lead others in the way of Christ. Now, there are two ways in which we're going to do this. A, we're going to lead others into Christ's holiness. And we see in this text the responsibility is twofold. First of all, it has to do with leading others. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. What happens if you have a millstone that only an animal can turn? That's a large millstone. What happens if you put that on your neck and jump in the Mississippi? Blub, blub. Over. Done. And Jesus is saying, if you cause one of these little ones who, and you notice the connection between little ones and the children he's spoken about before, but now he uses the same language that ties this whole text together. That's the reason you can tell all this text goes together, because of these literary links. But the little ones now are not just physically infant children. They're the ones who believe in him. Those are the little ones. So you must be careful that you don't cause any of these little ones to sin, or you're better off just calling it a day. Just put the millstone around your own neck and hop in. This is very serious language here. And obviously it's figurative, but he's saying this is how important it is that we influence other people toward righteousness and not toward unholiness. It's how important it is that we not trip people up, that we must encourage them in the right way. At the end of the services on Sunday, one of my favorite moments after the benediction, actually, is when some of your kids come up and I get a real big hug from them. And they they are so adorable. And I just, it's really just a great joy. And as you know, if you've tried to come up and talk to me and we start a conversation, a little kid comes up to me, our conversation is temporarily over. And and I just, because I don't want any of those kids to wait. And I'd rather have you be a little miffed and me be a little interrupted and to spend time with these kids. They're absolutely precious. And uh, I've thought, as we have so many religious leaders whose lives are, are tanking, in immorality. And I've just said, Lord, please, before I would hurt the souls of any of these four-year-olds or five-year-olds, please bring me home. Just get me home without leading any of these little ones astray. And, of course, the little ones that are most vulnerable to my misbehavior are my own children. And, you know, when, when guys are involved in extramarital affairs or when their marriages are flying apart, The kids are the ones that always get overlooked. And Jesus is saying, please, hear me. Be very careful with your influence in the church, in the home, at work. For someone at work to know that you're a Christian man and you're unkind and you're cheap and you're unruly and you're unethical 
really, you're better off putting a millstone around your neck and jumping in the Mississippi. A man told me one time that if he continued in his marriage, it was so bad, and he had a heart condition, he was afraid he was going to die. And so he had to divorce her. I said, no, no. You're better off having a heart attack and dying. And just go on and do it. And do it well. Get it over. You're better off dying than doing a lot of things. And what Jesus is saying, you're better off dying than leading some of these little ones that I have led to myself, my little lambs, and leading them astray. Elders, deacons, ministers, trustees, or whatever your office is in your church, watch out for yourself. Because you have a position of influence where you can not only help a lot of people, you can hurt a lot of people. And you're better off dying, frankly. I don't mean that because I don't like you or because I take your death lightly. But you really, I'm talking about the Bible. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You're better off dead than messing around and leading people astray because of your life. Be very, very careful. This is life and death. It's life and death. This is the kind of language Jesus is using. And we just must notice how serious sin is. And then notice uh, the other responsibilities ourselves. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. (laughs) Now, gentlemen, if he meant this literally, we'd all come in here on crutches with no hands, and we wouldn't be able to see. We'd all be blind, have our eyes gouged out. Every one of us. So obviously he's using hyperbole. But he's saying to us, it is a matter of life and death. It is very serious. That here, Here's the point. We need to take certain disciplines in our own lives. If you know you can't handle alcohol, why don't you just cut it off? You say, well, the doctor told me to take a glass of wine. Yeah, he didn't tell you to take four. He told you to take one. And if you can't handle one without taking four, why don't you just go ahead and die of a heart attack early instead of being a drunk? Seriously, you need to discipline yourself. Some of you just don't need to be touching this stuff. Some of you need to stop judging other people who do have their glass of wine. He doesn't say cut off somebody else's hand. You can cut your own hand off. Don't cut somebody else's hand off. Some of you have a real problem with women. And you just don't need to be watching certain movies. Cut your foot off. Cut it off. Don't cut somebody else's foot off. Maybe they can go to that movie. It's no problem for them. So it's a matter of personal disciplines that are not applied to the entire church, but they're applied to you because you know where you're vulnerable. So, gentlemen, know yourself and discipline yourself. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, look, if you don't watch out, you're going to end up in Gehenna. Look at this language. He says, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. This is verse 47. Then to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna. Gehenna was a valley. It's on the southwest corner of of the city of Jerusalem. And it it was the dump heap. That's what Gehenna was, down in the valley of Gehenna. And they threw all their trash over there and they burned it. And just the fire was always smoldering. And the worms were always crawling through and see what they can get. And that's the reason you get this language. Their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. So we're talking about, you know, figurative language here. But just because it's figurative language and metaphorical language, it does not mean it's not real. This is where people in the mainline Protestant churches are making a huge mistake. They say that because something is metaphorical, that it's not real. This is very real. 
Some people say there is no hell. Well, I say, turn to Matthew 25, verse 46, and you'll see Jesus says that eternal life is eternal, and he uses the same word for everlasting death. It's eternal. Go to Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, and you'll see the judgment of the wicked, and you'll see that their smoke goes up before him, listen to this, forever. Listen, I can't understand an eternal punishment. There is a part of me in which this does not make sense. For a man who's living in time and then suffers eternally, that doesn't seem quite fair, does it? But the Bible teaches me this is true, and the only reason I can think of logically is that God Himself is eternal and infinite in His holiness, and therefore our obligation to Him is infinitely significant, and when we break it, it's also infinitely significant. And therefore, a temporal misbehavior and rebellion deserves an eternal punishment. That's the only reasoning I can come up with. But whether I can figure it out or not, that seems to be clearly what the Bible is saying. I've just given you two verses that you're going to have to deal with if you think that because metaphorical language is used that hell is not real nor is it not very long. And Jesus is saying, look, you've got to deal with sin in your life. It eats your lunch. It takes over your life. It rules you. You do not rule it. You thought you were making certain decisions about how to spend your moral behavior. What you find out is there's sin out there that's very powerful. It's crouching at the door. The devil himself wants to jump on you, take over you, and throw you into hell forever. That's the whole purpose of the evil one. And Jesus is saying, watch out with sin. You're involved in warfare. My son is in Iraq flying helicopters. He has to keep his head up. He's in a war. You know what? So am I. So are you. The whole Christian life is warfare. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Put on your armor. Put every piece on with prayer, says the hymn writer. You need your armor every day. Fight the battle. God is, Jesus is simply saying it's life and death. Now, lastly, verses 49 and 50, we've got three minutes. We must lead others not only into Christ's holiness, but into Christ's peace. He says everyone will be salted with fire. That is, everyone will be tested. He uses, picks up on the word fire. See the linguistic connection? He's using fire in a different way, just like you use little children in a different way. But he's tying this whole text together literarily. He says, okay, I talked about fire. Let me talk about fire in a different way. Everybody's salted with fire. That is, everyone will have their trials. And what's the purpose of the trial? It's to, to make you useful. He also talks, he says they're salted with fire. And then look, he picks up in verse 50 with the word salt and uses it in a different way. He says salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be, make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. What is this salt? Well, it is the very nature of being a Christian man. In, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. We give things flavor, and more importantly, we preserve everything. Christian men, men who know Jesus, are the ones who are to preserve relationships everywhere. We're the salt of the earth. You're the salt of your company. You're the salt of your firm. You're the salt of your institution. You're the salt of the church. You're the salt of society. You're helping relationships all over the place. And he says, lastly, be at peace with each other. God calls us to peace. He equips us with our trials. He equips us with salt, making, giving us the very life and heart of Christ. And he calls us to peace. Be at peace with each other. How do you have this peace? I'm going to tell you very simple. You get this peace through the cross of Christ. This is the reason he just spoke of his own death. How do you get peace? 
You get peace with God. And then Jesus says, we have peace with one another through the blood of Jesus Christ. How does this work? It works because we know we've been forgiven 10,000 talents. And therefore, we can forgive the creep who owes us 100 denarii. Because we've been forgiven the massive debt through the cross. So we can make peace with someone who's offended us in a merely temporal way. So the cross is the one that gives us perspective. The cross is the one that enables us to forgive other people because we've been forgiven. The cross is that which teaches us to serve each other because He served us. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. It's the cross that liberates us from demanding from each other that you meet my needs, that you put me at the top, that you give me respect. The cross breaks all that. I die to myself and my own appetite through the cross. Therefore, I don't demand anything from you, but that you let me serve you. Does this mean I drop all reasonable boundaries in relationships? No. I erect them, but for the purpose of service, not of arrogating to myself the esteem that I desire from other people. You see what the cross does? It brings peace. And he says, you're the man who can bring peace. Now, so what? I got a minute and a half. That's all we need. Number one, develop a servanthood plan. I really think we need to go from here and figure out where you're going to make servanthood work, in what relationships, what changes you're going to make to get yourself at the bottom instead of yourself at the top. It's that simple. Let's get a plan. Secondly, reconsider possibilities for recognizing God's work in others and partnering with them. This short version, partner. Think about where you need to drop some of your turf guarding and move in and cooperate and collaborate with other people. Some of us are operating like the Apostle John was before Pentecost. Thirdly, put the finger on the elephant in the living room. What of your behavior that is leading you and others astray? What discipline do you need in your life to cut that thing off? To make yourself not vulnerable? If you're in a battle... You have to put bulwarks where you are weak. You have to protect yourself. Where do you need to protect yourself? Put the finger on the elephant in the living room. And fourthly, drop everything to be reconciled with your brother. As much as you have anything to do with it, if there's anything you've not apologized for, if there's any restitution you've not made, if there's any unkind word you haven't asked for forgiveness for, if there's anything between you and a brother, make peace now. It's so important, Jesus said, stop your worship. The most important thing in the universe. Stop your worship, leave your gift at the altar, and go be reconciled to your brother. That's what it means to have relationships that are centered upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, send us out as men of holiness and men of peace, men who esteem others more highly than ourselves, men who are looking to encourage and include others in the work of your great kingdom. Fill us with your spirit. Give us your mind. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.